Thank you for joining Radio Maria England. We now present Feasts and Seasons, presented by Joanna Bogle. Hello, Joanna Bogle here as usual, looking at the Feasts and Seasons of the Church's Year. We're in high summer now, coming up to the longest day of the year, more about that when we're a bit nearer to it, and with lots of summery feasts around. June is the month of the Corpus Christi, Corpus et Sanguinis Christi. It's a very, very important month, or put into less solemn language, it's First Communion Month. We have the great feast of Corpus et Sanguinis Christi, the body and blood of Christ. This is all about what is at the core of our faith in the Eucharist, the real presence of Christ. And we celebrated that last Sunday on Corpus Christi Sunday. And this idea of this feast, oh, you can tell people about it. It goes back to medieval times and so on. But the central idea is the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, as testified by Scripture, as taught by the saints, as lived. The idea of a special feast for Corpus Christi came up at a time when there wasn't this belief in the real presence. The story is told of a priest who didn't believe in it, and then when he was celebrating Mass, he saw blood on the host. And this uh, host, this miraculous host, is now kept in the church where this miracle occurred. And just recently, we have had a saint in Britain who was interested in these Eucharistic miracles. Blessed, as he now is, Carlo Acutis, a boy of Italian parents born in London. You may have heard the story. Tragically, he was struck down with leukemia while still in his teens. But while ill, he followed up his fascination with Eucharistic miracles and created a whole website about it, opening up to boys and girls of his generation, as well as to older people, the great mysteries and truth of the Eucharist. When he died and went to God, he'd left behind such a legacy of courage and good cheer in a tragic disease and his testimony of faith that his cause for beatification was introduced. Corpus Christi. It's given its name to so many things, and it's understood as being at the core of our faith. Churches, primary schools, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, all of these things honour the body and blood of Christ, the Corpus et Sanguinis Christi. This year, for obvious reasons connected with the pandemic, First Communion in different parishes hasn't been quite the same as usual. It's become a tradition in recent years, in recent centuries, for children to receive their First Communion altogether as a group. They attend classes beforehand, often making firm friendships on the way. And then there's First Communion Sunday, where they all gather together in the special clothes that are traditional, white frocks for little girls with veils or flowers in their hair, proper jackets and ties for boys, school blazers, perhaps a tie just like daddy's, sometimes a sash worn over one shoulder for the boys. And they gather with their family, their friends, grandparents, godparents, and it's a glorious day when they receive Holy Communion for the first time. 
But this year, no, large groups aren't allowed. And so children have been gathering in much smaller groups and with limited numbers of relations. And that great tradition, the first communion breakfast in the parish hall, perhaps with a big decorated cake and so on, well, that's all been a bit muted too. And it's been family celebrations. But nothing can take away the beauty, solemnity, and yes, the joy of this day. Another great tradition, of course, is the Corpus Christi procession. I took part in one in London this year from St. Patrick's Soho Square. All the trimmings, children walking ahead of the Blessed Sacrament, carried aloft under a canopy, scattering flowers. It took me back to when I did exactly that as a young first communicant, oh, many years ago, in a procession around the grounds of my school. St. Philomena's Carshalton, for anyone interested. Hi to all ex-Philomenians out there. I can remember the way we were instructed to do it, kissing the flowers and tossing them down. Each parish has its own traditions. In the parish I normally go to, they have a nice tradition where you wear a basket on a ribbon round your neck. At St. Patrick's, they were carrying little boxes in ahead of them and scattering the flowers that way. I remember people getting the flower baskets ready when I was a little girl, watching the grown-ups with big, big bunches of flowers, taking off the heads, scattering the rose petals, mixing them up by hand. Oh, and strategically placed around the school grounds were baskets, waste paper baskets, actually, but slightly decorated, filled with further flowers for us to scatter in case we ran out. Walking along, hearing everyone sing, O Sacrament Most Holy, O Sacrament Divine, and things like that, scattering the flowers before the Blessed Sacrament to make a pattern of flowers scattered across the path for our Lord is a very special and very memorable experience. A carpet of flowers. Now, sadly, that didn't happen this year, but a great tradition at Arundel Cathedral in Sussex every June is a carpet of flowers. And this is laid down the central aisle of that cathedral. It's a 19th century cathedral linked to the family, of course, the Fitzalan Howards, the Dukes of Norfolk, who own nearby Arundel Castle and who were responsible for building the cathedral. This beautiful carpet of flowers is worked every year by volunteer ladies at the cathedral, planned a long, long way in advance. It's fresh flowers laid out to make beautiful pictures and patterns, usually on a Eucharistic theme, and also usually relating to events that have happened during the year, special events in the life of the church or the life of the nation. I do hope it will happen in 2022, when it's the Platinum Jubilee of Her Majesty the Queen, which will probably be one of the things commemorated. It's not a carpet in the sense of being something just to, to walk over. It's there to enjoy. And it's only walked over at the very end when, with a glorious mass for Corpus Christi, the bishop walks down that central aisle and out into the streets, leading a great procession. Apart from that, the carpet is there to be loved, admired, and understood as a teaching instrument. And the whole of the cathedral is a sort of festival of flowers. Oh, bring it back. It's been very, very sad to see this and so many other traditions not adhered to in this year of the pandemic. Two summers running. Come on, let's hope and pray for better things in 2022. As well as the idea of a theme for a whole month, this is First Communion Month, Corpus et Sanguinis Christi Month, of course, we have the separate saints' days. 
scattered throughout each week. There are different grades of saint, if I may so express it, saints of the universal calendar and saints particular to a particular country. In the lifetime of many of us, we've seen many new saints, and I just mentioned a new blessed, Carlo Acutis, of whom we should be very proud as he was born in London. And in my lifetime, I've seen people that I even met made saints, allow me to boast, Saint John Paul the Great and Mother Teresa of Calcutta, both now canonized, Saint John Paul, Saint Teresa of Calcutta. Well, coming up this week, we have an English saint, Saint Richard of Chichester. He was a medieval figure and he became Archbishop. And this is very, very important because having who, whoever you have as leader of the church in our country, in England, is going to shape what happens. We are often a bit vague about medieval bishops. We hear, and alas, it's true, about corruption, about worldly lives. Just uh, recently, there was a discovery of a grave of some clergymen which said they had deformed feet because they all liked wearing very pointy shoes, a fashion in the Middle Ages. Well, they shouldn't have been interested in very fashionable pointy shoes that deformed their feet. They should have been interested in humility and service. Well, Richard of Chichester absolutely exemplifies this. He was appointed Chancellor of the... He was appointed... Chancellor of the Diocese of Canterbury, when his former tutor, Edmund of Abingdon, was named Archbishop of Canterbury. And so there was a, a way in which the wisdom of one saint, Edmund of Abingdon, is passed on to the next, Richard of Chichester. And yes, he goes on to become Bishop of Chichester, appointed in 1244. 1244, so we're in the 13th century, early-ish Middle Ages couple of hundred years before, oh, well, more than a couple of hundred, 300 years before the great events of the Reformation in 1535 and thereabouts, which defined our country's religious divisions. No, Richard belongs to an earlier Middle Ages, and he was notable precisely because of his humility. He refused, it is said, to dine off silver. He always wanted to live simply and humbly, frugally, temperate in matter of food and drink. He wore a hair shirt. That's something we struggle with today, something that's deliberately uncomfortable and itchy in the inside of your clothes to remind you to be uncomfortable when you're wearing important robes. He kept to his diet uh, rigidly, and there was never any significant sort of showing off. People loved him because they knew that the man they saw was the man they could speak to. He was very strict with his clergy, wouldn't tolerate corruption, and he didn't like priests who mumbled the mass. It had to be said properly. That's very important. The mass, the Eucharist, we're back to Corpus Christi again, is the word made flesh. It's a dialogue. The incarnation didn't happen silently. It was a word given and received when the angel spoke to Mary and Mary responded. She was startled by the angel's words, and she responded to God's call to become the mother of the Saviour, and the word was made flesh in her womb. At Mass, following the commands of Richard of Chichester, we engage in a dialogue 
priest and people, bridegroom and bride, and yes, the word is made flesh on the altars of our churches. Thank you to Richard of Chichester for showing proper care for the saying of mass. He was very active in promoting the Dominicans, um, who then as now were the great teaching religious order. He lived, as I've said, simply and humbly, and he was absolutely committed to the idea of educating his clergy and showing people what a priest should really be in his own life and in the life of the clergy for whom he was responsible. And he was strict. A Catholic priest is not allowed to marry. And Richard was very clear in stamping out the concubines that some of them had, stamping out that practice, send, sending them away, urging the priest to penance, in fact, being extremely strict with them, depriving a priest of his parish. And they really uh, had to understand that they must be celibate. He was extremely strict about this. A vow of chastity was to be required for ordination. He was also firm that priests should reside in their parishes, and they had to be hospitable and charitable, and they had to be open and friendly to all, and ex were expected to be treated with respect and to love their parishioners. Hmm. There's a whole lot in Richard of Chichester's statutes that are really very, very impressive, stamping out things that were wrong in the clergy, making them adhere to their vows, and everything. No wonder we think of him with some affection, even though I suspect that a lot of people don't know very much about him. Did you know? It was he who made it clear that ordinary people were expected to be taught by their priests the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, so that everybody would know them. And the priest in a parish had to make sure about that. Well, you might say everyone would know it. Yes, but in an illiterate age, they must be brought together to be instructed in this. There weren't books. There weren't little prayer cards. Parents can teach their children, of course, but they need to be kept up to date and taught. It's a vanished world, the Middle Ages. The sort of things that a bishop could do then, he can't do now, using the much greater power of an entire culture that was framed by the Catholic Church in a sometimes unwholesome bond with the state, something that uh, Richard himself didn't care for. He had to keep fighting for the church's freedom from royal power and so on. But he's a model for all bishops. There's a prayer often called St. Richard's Prayer, which is associated with him, which people like because it has lovely echoes, not quite a rhyme, but echoes. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast given to me, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me, O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother. May I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly. He is said to have recited that prayer on his deathbed, surrounded by a large number of the clergy of the diocese. There is something about this prayer which has captured people's love, and perhaps because of the rhythm and the echo in those words, it's been repeated again and again and again down all the generations. It survived the Reformation and is today popular among Anglicans and Catholics alike. You'll see it printed on prayer cards, and I just recently incorporated it in a small prayer book for children, which we have 
had published a group of Catholic ladies and we are giving as prizes in a, yes, this would please St. Richard of Chichester too, in a Lord's Prayer project run for London schools. A leaflet has gone to every London primary school, not just Anglican and Catholic ones, but state primary schools too, inviting children to write out the Lord's Prayer. We're following the example of Richard of Chichester. We also want the children to understand it. So they're invited also to explain what hallowed means, what trespasses are, and to answer the question, who taught us this prayer? I've got to say, we've had some funny answers. I think St. Richard would enjoy this too. One little girl wrote, hallowed means when you open it, there's nothing inside, only empty. She got it mixed up with hollowed. Another child wrote, our father who art in heaven, hello, be thy name, which I rather liked. And yes, a lot of children think that trespasses is all about not walking on the flower beds or going to the bit of the park you're not allowed in. But an awful lot of them get it right and they merit their prize, which is a little prayer book which includes the Lord's Prayer and 12 other prayers, sort of like Christ and the Twelve Apostles. And yes, it includes the prayer of St. Richard of Chichester. In this first communion month, why don't we pray for children in Britain? Pray for all those who don't know the Lord's Prayer. It used to be taught to children in all ordinary primary schools, not just church school. Perhaps that could happen again if we pray. Let's pray that children in our country will come to know the Lord's Prayer, will come to know Jesus Christ. Let's commit the children of England under the protection of St. Richard of Chichester and his intercession to the care of God so that we can revive Christianity in our land. St. Richard of Chichester, pray for us and let's all enjoy our beautiful belief and our rich understanding of the Eucharist in this month, this First Communion Month. You're listening to Auntie Joanna, Joanna Bogle on Feasts and Seasons. Tune in to Auntie Joanna on Feasts and Seasons on Sunday, 6.30pm, Tuesday, 4.30pm, Saturday, 2.30am, Saturday, 8.30pm. And send us any of your stories. Tell us how you celebrate the feasts and seasons of the church's year. Any family traditions? What do you do, make, eat and sing for the different feasts of the year? What will you be doing for the feasts that are coming up? Send us your stories at info at radiomariaengland.uk Music